Good morning, guys. Okay, last time we were a little bit rushed, so this time we're gonna get started. Grab some coffee, grab a handout, and then just congratulate yourselves a little bit because this is the last week of biblical theology. You've made it this far. Welcome. My name is Sam Connect, and I'll just be closing us out uh, for the last week of biblical theology. But first, I have an announcement um, from, from Stephen Martin about ABFs. So if you're interested in the next topical ABF, if you want to keep going with these topical ABFs, the next one is going to start next Sunday in Heritage Hall. Room is to be determined. But Heritage Hall, it's going to be on financial stewardship. So if that interests you, I think we're all, we all have some, some tie-in to financial stewardship, young and old, um, just in all stages of life. That's going to be next Sunday in Heritage Hall. And then also our regular ABF classes are going to be resuming as well next Sunday. So whichever one of those you're interested in, um, that is an option to you. Okay, to close out biblical theology, to put a cap on this, this 12-week summer seminar, I'm going, to, I'm going to expand more on melodic line to start out, and then we're going to look at two different texts, two different passages similar to last week, ask four questions of each of those texts, and then I'll just finish with some ways to apply this whole course to your life together as the body. Um, before we begin actually doing biblical theology, let's pray. Would you pray with me to start? Father, you're so worthy of our praise and worthy of our attention. Help us this morning and this week to just pay attention to your word. Help us to know it well and so well that we want others to know it also. Father, build this church on love for and just attention to your word. We gather together, we read together, and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to start by following up. I dropped this new tool in your lap, this, uh, this idea of the melodic line last week, and then I didn't show you as well as I could have how exactly we were using it in those passages last week. So um, Luke and Colossians, I didn't show you how we were drawing it out and using that tool, the melodic line. So I want to just rewind a little bit to our passage in Luke 4. And I mentioned this, this theme or title of Son of God last week, if you remember that. Yeah, you can turn to Luke 4, 1 to 13. Let's jump in and see exactly how the melodic line is being worked out, how we use that to our advantage to understand what the passage means. So you notice just within seven verses of each other, you have that title appear. Um, Son of God. And you can draw this out with me if you're a note taker. We see that twice. It's appearing twice in that passage. So we, we're tuned in. We, we hear melody happen, and then we, we want to know more about it. Um, but we, we don't know much about this title just looking at our passage. If we only look at the passage, we don't know much. So let's expand out to just the book of Luke, the whole book of Luke. So first we hear in Luke 1.32, we get Gabriel promising that this Jesus, this baby being born to Mary, would become called the Son of the Most High God. 
And then in Luke 22:70, we get the Jewish high council just asking Jesus, are you the son of God? And he affirms their, their accusation. He affirms them and says, you've said that I am. So that's kind of the bookends of this title showing up, Son of God. It's bookending Luke, but we actually see nine different times either the title Son of God is being used or people are questioning, whose son is Jesus? Who is this man? Whose son is he? So nine different times the identity of Jesus, of whose son is he, shows up. And the demons, the devil, people, angels, the Jewish high council, Jesus himself, and then God the Father in that Baptist, that baptism uh, ceremony where that voice from God calls Jesus his beloved son of God. All those different groups and people call Jesus the son of God or question his identity. So we get nine times in the book of Luke. Son of God. Showing up nine different times. And we get this concentric circle. We're just looking further out. So I get the passage. And then we get the book of Luke. Well, let's, let's look even further. That's just the book of Luke. So really, we don't have a full picture of what that means. What, is, what does it mean to be the Son of God? And so let's go a little bit further out and just look at everywhere in the New Testament. So it's kind of remarkable that all four Gospels use this title to refer to Jesus. There's consistency. There's a consistent witness to him being the Son of God in all four of the Gospels. So we get that. We get, we get four Gospels mentioning it. And it's Paul's almost favorite title. For Jesus. He calls him the Son of God numerous times in the letters. And then the book of Hebrews, we get the angels, these lowly angels, compared to the to the heights and the glory of the Son of God. That's the, the title used in Hebrews in the early chapters. The angels are being compared to the Son of God. So why would we worship angels? Let's worship the Son of God. Look at this. We get this concentric circle, the whole New Testament and the whole New Covenant. That's just New Testament. Let's take it just one, one step further. Let's look at the entire counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. What does it mean to be the Son of God? Who else is known as the Son of God? So we referenced this a little bit last week. But we get, we get Adam being called the Son of God. Even by Luke, he's referenced as the Son of God. But maybe not the same way that Jesus is. But that title still appears, so we get a fuller picture. And then we get Abraham. Abraham is promised a son, but the son would be coming from God. He'd be given by God to Abraham. And then last week we referenced a people group that's actually called the Son of God. A people group known as Israel. We get Israel called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4. So just by following 
the first initial splash, this initial melody of Son of God, we, we get to follow the ripples out to get a fuller picture of what the Son of God is. Whole Bible. But turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. We haven't seen the full picture of Son of God unless we read Galatians 4. Because on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, the Son of God means something else. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Would someone mind reading Galatians 4, 4 through 7 loudly so everybody can hear? Thank you. So we get this reference of Jesus as being the Son of God. God sent forth his Son. And then by the end of the passage, who's called a Son of God? We are called Sons of God. So it's not just a, a title, but it's a, it's a status of inheritance. We get this inheritance through the true Son of God. We become part of the family of God via his Son that he sent. You see that? So this, this idea in Luke, it's, it's riffing off of, it's rhyming with all of these other ideas, but it's redefining those. It's similar to a symphony that we described last week. Those movements, they have similar melodies, but they interpret one another. They bounce off one another, and they give meaning to one another. And so just these two instances in our original passage, we can, we can scope out, we can follow the ripples in the pond, if you will, to mix metaphors. <laughs> to mix metaphors, we, we see this bigger picture, this bigger picture of the Son of God, and we, through Christ, can call ourselves sons of God with inheritance. So that's just one, one example of using the melodic line, following it through. And by, by noticing the initial splash of the stone, we follow the ripples out. But while we're we're listening with our ears for the melodic line. We're going to be watching with our eyes for these four questions, trying to answer with the text these four questions that we've been asking each text over the past few weeks. Those four questions are printed on your handout. And we've answered these basic questions before. We're familiar with them. And you can feel free to take these, these questions away, take them home, and then with any text that you want to open up, ask these four questions and move through that, that process of reflection. So first asking, what is the point of the text? We just do this plain, simple exegesis, figure out what is it saying? Just in its plain context, what is it saying in its context around that text? Exegesis, pulling out the meaning that's waiting for us in the text. And then where does this text fall in the biblical storyline? What is going on around the audience and the author? What redemptive events are about to happen or have just happened? What covenant are we in? Are we in the new covenant, the Mosaic, the Davidic? We've reviewed those. 
And then how does this text point to Christ? We, we know that the entire Bible points to Christ because Jesus said so in Luke. After establishing what the text says and where it sits in the biblical storyline, we begin asking questions about Jesus and what must we believe about Jesus if we believe that this text is true. So that's where we use all those familiar tools, theme, typology, storyline, the gospel, God, man, Christ, response. And then we always look for links between the old and the new. How are they bouncing off of and interpreting one another? Lastly, that last question, the most important in a church context, when you're teaching a text or or looking at a text, trying to apply it to somebody else in their life, we ask, how do I read this text through Christ to us today? What does it mean for us? We've looked at what it meant for them, and now through Christ, we get to read it for our own circumstances. How do we obey this passage? A good example on this is, is whenever someone is preaching on Sunday morning here at UBC, they're actually using that member directory. I know this, just I've heard from, from the pastors that they use that member directory, they flip through it, they're looking for people that this passage would particularly apply to their lives, their circumstances that they're in. Student, retired, young family, um, children even. How would they obey the text that's being preached and, and taught? So we ask these four questions. They're simple, but they're, they do a lot of work. And by just finding the answers to these questions, we're doing biblical theology on our passages. Okay, that's all by way of introduction. So if you're ready to move into our first passage, if you feel ready, give me a nod or a yes. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I just have a question. Like with this, yes. With your mm-hmm. I mean, even as you go through this, I mean, my reaction, you have to know, you have to know a lot about Scripture to, to do this. Mm-hmm. So if you're on the beginning, either a young Christian or, you know, even, not, even if I'm just reading one passage, I may not even think about it, even though I've read it before, I may not think mm-hmm. about it. How do you how do you start doing this? How do you start doing this sort of? Mm-hmm. I have I have some I have some great resources to hand you guys, and for you to be putting in the hands of other people that maybe are new believers. So that's a great question. How do you even start doing something like this? And we all start as non-believers, like just totally unfamiliar with the Word of God, and then we become Christians, and then. We're little infants, as, as the Bible describes us, and we grow in maturity. We first take milk, and then we take meat. And so I'm going to put resources in your hands to, to help you guys. You can, you can read one of these books, or you can even read a children's book on the whole story of the Bible. You can read it in a few sittings, and then you can start asking these questions. You, you can start remembering what's been mentioned before, and then get a fuller picture to start doing that work on your own or with, with close friends? So that's a great question. Concordances, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Concordances, um, biblical dictionaries and glossaries, just any tools that, that 
you see as secondary to the Bible, but helping you turn back to the Bible, the main text that is helping you as a Christian. Yeah, all kinds of tools around reading scripture. So Acts 13 is where we're going to turn to first. Acts 13. We're, we're finishing these, these last two genres this morning on the New Testament. We've looked at a gospel. We've looked at one of the New Testament letters. And then this morning we're going to look at Acts and Revelation. So really unique genres. New Testament, just narrative, history. And then we'll look at New Testament prophecy as well. We're in Acts 13, verses 42 through 52. I'm going to give some context before we actually go into the passage. We're looking at one of my favorite books. Acts is just rich with, with history, but it's history that actually teaches us about our life right now. It's really unique in that way. You can't pick up any other history book and learn about today in the same kind of way that you do with Acts. Um, this is the second part of Luke, Luke writing to his friend Theophilus. So we read the last part, or the first part last week in the Gospel of Luke. He's writing to his friend Theophilus, this fellow believer, trying to encourage him in the certainty of what he believed when he believed. Acts is, is focusing on that aftermath of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. What happens immediately after? So we got the life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection, and now we have the ascension of Jesus, and then we have this movement spreading out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, this movement tiny at first, but it's this powerful movement of people turning from their sin, seeing how good God is, how not good we are, turning from their sin, and then putting their faith in Jesus, this, this son of God that we've looked at, who died on the cross for us, and then just helping one another, that last step, helping one another follow Jesus in churches while they wait for his return. That's what this big story is about in Acts. And if you're here this morning, just by way of introduction to the gospel, if you haven't done that, you can become like one of these believers in Acts that we're going to read about. One of these people that, that wants to know Jesus and wants to make war on sin. Um, we're going to read more about these new believers. But Acts follows this movement, and it's, it's following a few decades of the early church. So to that end, it's more of a greatest hits album than a direct tape recorder of every single thing that happens. It's kind of this, these vignettes, these stories that help us learn about the gospel, help us learn about Jesus. But it's not a, an exact account of every single thing that happened in the church for these first 30 years or so. Luke gives us stories that either record an important event or teach us something about Jesus, or a little bit of both sometimes. And it's, it's good to discern that. So an event like Pentecost, or teaching us about missions, as we'll see today. That's all just Acts as a book. But our passage today in Acts 13, 42 through 52, it takes place during the first recorded mission trip. First recorded mission trip as we might think of it today. The Apostle Paul is with his, his co-laborer Barnabas, his friend Barnabas, and they're sent out 
by the church at Antioch in Syria. It's the first time missionaries are sent out by a church. We are intentionally sending you out to preach the gospel, to go to the ends of the earth, and so they're making their way around the Mediterranean, just faithfully preaching the gospel, and they make their way towards another city named Antioch. This one is in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor. Paul has, has just preached this monumental sermon, starting in Acts 13, 16. I would encourage you to, to read this sermon, maybe this afternoon or this week. Acts 13, 16 to verse 41. This sermon, he basically does biblical theology on the spot. He interprets the Old Testament for these Jews in a synagogue on a Sabbath day. And they're listening intently. They're listening to Paul's sermon. And he's showing how all of what they study points to this man who, who came, died on a cross after living the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve, and how that Old Testament just points to him and his resurrection and our victory now as Christians in Christ. So immediately after this Sabbath synagogue sermon to these fellow Jews of Paul, we approach this passage in Acts 13, 42 through 52. That's the context. So I'm going to start reading Acts 13, 42. As I went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next, the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we arrive at our first question. What is the point of this text? What do you notice? There's two groups, if I, if I heard you right, there's two groups with very different responses to, to what? What's their, what are they responding to? To the gospel, to this message that 
Paul had just preached, they're responding very differently to the gospel. What else do you guys notice? That's right. Persecution can lead to the furtherance of the gospel. The word of the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Verse 49. That's right. I think we have to notice to get the point of this text, we have to notice how much Luke is mentioning the word of the Lord. He mentions it four times throughout this text, and that's what that's what people are responding to the Jews of high standing and and then the Gentile the Gentiles and the Jews who want to believe that's what they're responding to those positive and negative responses they're responding to the word of the Lord so in verse 42 as they went out the people at the synagogue the people begged that these things they begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath they were just just hanging on the words of, of Paul, just doing this, this exposition of the Old Testament for them. They wanted the word of the Lord more and more. And then we get this, this sort of accusation by Paul. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, further on, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. They, they, what's the wording? They thrust aside the word of God. That's interesting. That is the direct opposite response to the word of God. So I think we can arrive at a faithful summary of this passage and reach the point of it. And just while Gentiles beg for more of the word of God, Jews, the supposed people of God, reject and despise it. So Gentiles beg for more of the word of God. And then Jews, the supposed people of God, reject and despise it. So these ethnic Jews, they're throwing aside the word of God while Gentiles are are begging for more of it. That's what's going on in the text, but where does this text fall in the biblical storyline? in the New Covenant. So we're on the far end. We're on this end of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We're in the New Covenant. How else would you describe where this is falling in the story, falling in the storyline? Yeah, the fulfilling of the Great Commission is happening right now. The church is being, being spread via the planting of individual churches. So it's important to note this is coming before any of those great pastoral letters that we get in the New Testament. This is that first church planting trip that the apostles are taking. It's coming before all those letters. I mean, just practically, these churches had to be planted before they could be encouraged with more of the Word of God. So it's before those, those encouraging letters and rebuking letters of the New Testament. But it's after Jesus' command and, and his great commission. It's after his ascension. 
So it's right in that in-between where the church is, is being planted. Important to note is that Paul is, is quoting from Isaiah in verse 47. He's quoting from Isaiah, writ, this prophecy written seven centuries before the events happening here. So he is, he is seeing how, how they fit into the culmination of everything that God had prepared for, for them. He's seeing himself as, as in the line of Isaiah and the other prophets, fulfilling everything that they looked forward to. That's where it fits in the storyline of the Bible. But more directly, how does this text teach us about Jesus? How does it point to Christ? His name isn't mentioned in this text. How does it point us to Christ? That's right. He's alive for all people. In verse 47, quoting Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But what is that salvation? How would you describe why Paul quotes this? Yeah, so Paul is, is tying together this idea of salvation from Isaiah with the word of God that was spoken first to the Jews and now to the Gentiles. He's tying those two together. I'm, we're bringing salvation to the ends of the earth while bringing... Am I good? Cool. He's bringing salvation to the ends of the earth while bringing the word of the Lord to the ends of the earth. But what is this word of the Lord? It is this Jesus that he just preached throughout this, this lengthy sermon on Sabbath to, in the synagogue. This Jesus that is the culmination of the word of God. And even in John 1, we get this description of Jesus the person as being the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So this theme of word of God can be traced throughout all scripture. We could trace it. We're not going to this morning, but we could trace this theme of word of God. That's how we're using our, our tools. And it culminates. It reaches its, its climax in the person of Jesus. He is the word. And going along with, with more of these biblical theological tools, we get this New Testament link with the Old Testament. Paul is interpreting Isaiah. He is, he is giving new meaning to what Isaiah presented to the people of God seven centuries before. So bringing the word of God concerning Jesus is bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And in the same way, rejection of the word of God is a rejection of Jesus and ultimately a rejection of salvation. You're turning away from the way of salvation, Jesus Christ. So Jesus saved all who were appointed to eternal life. That is where we get the gospel link. This God, this goodness of God, this corruption of man, rebellion of man, and then Christ being sent to die for sinners and our response and repentance and faith. 
that's where we get God, man, Christ's response in this passage, is that, is that all who were appointed to eternal life were saved by this word of God, this Jesus, that we know so much about from the New Testament. And that included people from all nations, not just Israel, right, as we've noted already. But to believe in Jesus, one must believe and accept the word of God. They're tied together. Okay. This last question on this text, how can we read it today for us now through Christ? How do we apply this text? How do we obey this passage? need to listen to and share the word of God. That's right. Doing so, loving the word of God is loving Jesus. That's, that's what we're doing when we, when we listen to the word of God, when we share it with others. We're sharing this salvation that Paul is tying into the word of God. We're sharing Jesus. Any other application you guys can think of? Don't be surprised when the word of God is rejected. That's a good, that's a good application. And then on the, other, on the flip side, don't be surprised when people believe that you don't expect to believe. These, these Jews that were opposing the word of God, they were shocked that the Gentiles would believe, that these dirty people outside of the people of God would believe, and they would come to salvation. They were shocked. And let, let us not be shocked when someone quote-unquote, far from God, believes. No one is beyond the salvation of Jesus, if they are called, if they are appointed to salvation. So let us, let us do like these, like these Gentiles and Jews in the synagogue. Let us beg for more of the word. Let us seek it out, and let us hear it, and listen to it, and love it. And don't be surprised when people believe that you don't expect to believe. And don't be surprised when the word of God is rejected and just remain faithful in your deliverance of it. So wait on his word. Wait on the word. Depend on it. Hang all of your hopes and dreams on the word. Even let it shape what you hope for. And then set your life upon it. Build your life on the foundation of the word because it brings salvation. So just from a few moments with these 11 verses... We have a, a rough outline of a sermon, practically, of a, of a lesson. You know, we got from the text itself to the meaning of the text to, to where it is, and then what does it teach us about Christ, and then what does it teach us about our life now? How can we read it through Christ? We have a rough outline of a lesson on this text. Any other application you guys can think of? Verse 50. Yeah. Can you repeat that? Sorry. I didn't quite hear it. Hmm. 
Yeah, that is an admonition to leaders for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Satan loves to attack the the people who are speaking the word of God to people because they can, if he can just get them to to err a little bit or even reject the word of God, he do a lot of damage. That's an admonition to leaders for sure. Hmm. That's right. Verse forty-four. Yeah. That's right. So the city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. They weren't, I mean, real practically, they weren't just in their houses on their couches hearing the word of the Lord being delivered to them like, like a letter. They gathered together to hear it and then apply it to their lives, to love one another together. That's right. Okay, that is Acts thirteen forty-two through 52. You can go further with it when you get home after church today. But we're going to turn to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, we're going to close out with the, the last kind of New, Test, New Testament major genre that we find, this New Testament prophecy. We've already seen a gospel passage, a letter, those two last week. We saw a New Testament narrative just now, and now we're going to look at New Testament prophecy. So in Revelation, we have this prophetic message, but it's not coming out of nowhere. It's delivered directly to this apostle John, wrote the Gospel of John and other, other books. And he is delivering this message that's delivered by Jesus to him. He's delivering it to churches. He's delivering it to churches, and that's the audience, is, is people who, again, have turned from their sin, have trusted in this Jesus and belief, and they're helping one another follow Jesus. But they're doing more than that. They're, just, they're also waiting productively and patiently for his return. That's another thing they're doing is waiting for Jesus. And so they're, they're encouraged when they receive this. They're encouraged when they receive this, this revelation from John, this, um, this new prophecy of what will happen when Jesus returns. So Revelation 1.1, John writes to these churches about not just the things that will happen. In Revelation 1.1, the things that must soon take place. These must happen. These will happen. You can be certain that these will happen. It's a good encouragement for us. Put simply, John writes the sec- about the second coming of Jesus to encourage his fellow believers in their current life. It's not just an academic study of what will happen. That's actually to encourage them right now in their life. So first he writes the words of Jesus delivered to him over to seven different churches, specifically addressed to seven different churches, and we can read a little bit of application in those, in those seven letters for us today. But those seven letters are full of both rebuke and encouragement. They're full of both of those because they're from Jesus to his people. And then in chapter 4, John moves into this very different section of Revelation, this description of the throne room of God. It's similar to Isaiah 6, if you're familiar with that passage, where Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and, and, uh, and God's robe fills, his train fills the throne room. But this is a very different description, because it's a different covenant. John is there, watching, waiting on what will happen next. And it's also a much more detailed description 
of this throne room of heaven. We get 24 elders sitting in 24 thrones around the throne of God himself. Then we get these four living creatures in Revelation 4. Four living creatures with unearthly, like beastly forms, detailed descriptions of what they look like. And these elders and the living creatures, they worship the Lord. That's what's notable about them. They worship the Lord. We can be amazed at them and ask questions about who they are, but they actually want you to be turning to God and looking at him and figuring him out and worshiping him. The elders and the living creatures, they worship the Lord. They're singing unceasingly. They're singing over and over, worshiping God. Then John turns his attention to this scroll in the right hand of the one who sits upon the throne, in the right hand of God. The scroll. No one could be found to open the seals of it. No one could be found worthy to open the seals. Except for this this mysterious figure, this lamb waiting in the wings, this lamb in verse 5-6, between the throne and the four living creatures, And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain. It's almost a confusing description of he's standing with authority, but he's been slain, this lamb. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, from God himself. The anticipation of this scroll, this judgment of God upon the people of God, upon the whole world. This anticipation is built and built, and the living creatures and the elders, they worship this lamb, this figure who's taken the scroll out of God's hand, and they burst out in song. That's how they choose to worship. They burst out in more song, but towards this lamb. So let's begin our passage in Revelation 5, 8 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Okay, what is the point of this text? What would you say? What's going on? Kind of give it away. Yes. <laughs> Worship. That's right. Yeah, worship is mentioned at the end of chapter 5, but it's been going on it's been happening throughout the whole chapter and really that whole section in the throne room. That's right, there's worship going on. 
There's obviously this centrality of this lamb figure, Jesus. We can, spoiler alert, this is Jesus that we're looking at. This lamb figure, we can just call him Jesus while we're talking about him. But Jesus is being worshipped similarly to the one who is seated upon the throne. If you notice, he's, he's being sung to, and people are just bowing themselves before him, putting themselves down before him, their entire lives and their, their bodies, just bowing before him and singing to him. And it looks really similar. So that's, there's obviously not that much difference between the, the worthiness of worship of the lamb and the worthiness of worship of this of the one who sits upon the throne. I think we can arrive at a faithful point of this text being worthy is the lamb who was slain to save a people from all nations. Just quickly sum, sums up this passage. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to save a people from all nations. Kind of hits on many things that are going on throughout these three verses. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to save a people from all nations. Okay, so where does this text fall in biblical storyline? It's a bit of a trick question. What was that? Okay, just laughing. Good. We'll start with covenant. Which covenant are we in? New covenant. So the new covenant is fulfilling all those old covenants. So the new covenant fulfills all the promises made in those those old covenants. Yeah. So we're in the new covenant. Who's the author in the audience? What's going on in their lives? John is exiled. He's writing to churches. He's encouraging them in in his time in the first century about all these things that are going to happen at least a couple thousand years from now as he's writing. So it's on the other side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but it's more than that. It's actually the fulfillment of everything that these Christians have been hoping for. Thousands of years later, he's describing everything that they're hoping toward and for to be fulfilled. Jesus, the the Lamb of God, is worthy to open the scroll and judge all people from all nations that he saved. And that, that hits on every single covenant before the new covenant. That hits on every single stage of God's salvation. How does how does this text point to Christ? We get descriptions of him, but what does it teach us about Christ? Mm-hmm. That's right. He is the only one worthy to open the scroll deliver God's, God's judgment, his word, to the world. So we see a, a worthy Jesus. He's, he's triumphant. He's authoritative. We see little glimpses of this throughout the Gospels. Here and there, we, we see glimpses of this authoritative Jesus commanding the spirits, commanding the, the storms, flipping over tables. But we don't, 
we don't think of him primarily as that when we read the Gospels. We, we consider him as, um, in, in light of his gentle submission to the cross, we see his, the submissive Jesus, but now we get this picture of a triumphant Jesus ruling over the world. So that's a, the, we, we also see the theme of sacrifice. So using these tools that we know so well, the theme of sacrifice has carried through to its final conclusion in the last book of the Bible. Theme of sacrifice, he's referenced as the lamb. But what's being sacrificed is actually what will rule over the people, this Jesus, who is both priest and sacrifice. He was both the priest of the people and the sacrifice that the priest gave over. He gave himself. He surpasses all types of sacrifices before this, surpasses the Passover lamb. He surpasses the Levitical law. And then our response to Jesus so the response to Jesus by the elders and the creatures is just total worship, total, utter submission to this authoritative Jesus and glad submission. So we see a, a glimpse of a part of God, man, Christ's response. What is the response of these, these heavenly creatures to Jesus? It's worship. It's trust in him as their judge. The Atlantic, the national magazine, The Atlantic, just recently asked their readers, whose untimely death would you most like to reverse? Whose untimely death would you most likely, most like to reverse? Thankfully, nobody answered Jesus. I was really glad to read that. (laughs) Because we need his death. But a passage like this shows us also we need his life. We need his resurrected life. He fulfills not just a a death and a sacrifice on a cross, but he fulfills a a heavenly ministry. He had an earthly ministry, and now, for these last couple thousand years and into the future, he has a heavenly ministry. We should be thankful for that. He is this authoritative Jesus interceding on our behalf right now, and then in the last days, he will be this judge in the last days over the whole world. We need his his heavenly ministry. Okay, so how do we read this today through Christ? How do we apply it to our lives today? These three verses. There's no one worthy, and it's, it's a sad reality. Christ is waiting. Yeah, that should be our response in verses 1 through 4 is this weeping that we can't, we can't do any of this fulfillment of every covenant before Jesus. We can't fulfill those. Yeah, we should have that response of joy at the worthiness of Jesus. Sam, 
like a completion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A greater, yeah. That's right. So we have this tension of the already and not yet. We can be encouraged that, that Jesus is already in this heavenly ministry, but it's not yet to its completion. He hasn't, he hasn't come and returned and completed his, his ministry and, and made the new creation. I, I would just say, can, can we say that we lay our lives down like the, the living creatures and the elders? Do we lay our lives down in worship? Do we respond with joy like, like John does? And then, like these heavenly creatures, do we lay our lives down and just every part of our lives, lives becomes worship? Do we, do we do it together? So we haven't really delved into who the living creatures are or who the elders are, but they're obviously different from one another, and they're worshiping together. They realize in their differences they need to both worship this one lamb that's worthy. And then more historically, do we look forward to that day? Do we anticipate this? Do we, do we actually hope for this to be true? Looking at these events, do we hope for a Jesus that's going to punish evil and then redeem repentant sinners? Do we hope for that? That's an application for us today. So trust final, finally in this Lamb of God. Throw yourself down before him. He'll, he'll be your loving judge. That's an application we have. And then your redeeming judge as well. So that closes out Revelation, and we just have a, a few minutes left. I want, I want us to zoom out a little bit as we close Revelation. I want us to zoom out and look at this whole 12-week summer seminar. And I asked you guys to start kind of reflecting on, on how you would take, take this class away and how would, you, how would you apply it to your lives? Similar to that fourth question, how would you apply uh, the text? But how would you apply all the principles that we learned in this class? I first want to thank you for being part of this journey with me, Chris, and Trey. But also, I, I want to give you guys some potential application. I did some reflection this week, and I just want to give you guys some application of this this class to your life together as the church. But before I get into that, that list and bombard you with all these different options, I want you to see it more as a, as a menu instead of a to-do list. So it would be a shame to walk into a restaurant, order water, and not try anything on the menu, to do nothing and get nothing from the menu. But it would also be a shame to to gorge yourself and order everything on the menu, one of each, for the whole table. So as I give you these, don't, don't feel shame on either um, not doing one or doing another, but just see these as options for, for you to faithfully just carry forward some of the principles we've seen in this class as a menu of potential application. So consider reading the upcoming sermon passage. Some of you guys do this. A few times in the week before, before the upcoming sermon. Consider reading the upcoming sermon passage and read it with other people, people in your household, roommates, children, your spouse. Even further with this one, with this application, is maybe consider trying to answer those four questions for yourself. Take away this handout today. Take it with you 
and answer those four questions. Um, write it out, take some notes, and then, and then you can bring those notes with you on Sunday and see, where did I, where did I see differently from, from the preacher that Sunday? Even if you don't do that pre-work, so that kind of a little bit more academic pursuit before Sunday, if you don't do that pre-reflection, consider just taking good notes in the Sunday sermon. If you're not a note-taker, try it one Sunday. And just even just write down the context around the passage that the preacher is giving. That answer of where does this fit into the biblical storyline? What's going on? And write that down and build up your kind of ability and empowerment to do that in the future. I mentioned that we, we had a rough outline of a sermon earlier. We had a rough outline of a lesson, a first draft. Have you considered teaching? Have you considered expressing your interest in teaching, even just in a small Bible study or an ABF? If you don't desire to teach the Word of God to fellow women, to fellow men, to a, to a mixed ABF, then, um, then just consider that. Take that away, pray about it, consider it, because you have the tools in front of you, and, and really this doesn't take a special sermon, seminary degree. It takes just careful understanding of the text. It takes understanding of the people that you're teaching, and then help of the Holy Spirit, and that's really it. It doesn't take special degrees or special training. You can teach the Word of God. More specifically, can you think of someone in UBC who wasn't in the summer seminar that you could share these materials with. Feel free to invite me, Chris, or Trey along in that journey if you want to bring us in and, and help equip the body even more than this class. Our email addresses and phone numbers are in that member directory if you want to reach out. And if you want to follow this, this piece of application, the handouts that we get every week, these handouts, and then at least some of the teaching notes are available from Stephen Martin. He's going to have those on hand. On a more basic level, kind of working down from teaching down to the individual level, have you considered being in a regular discipling relationship, looking at the Word together with someone else in UBC? I can tell you firsthand, just from conversations with even people in this room, that there's a, a craving for discipling relationships in all generations. So maybe you could take that first awkward step and ask someone if they want to get lunch and just read the sermon passage ahead of time or read the book of Luke, read the book of Mark, read the Psalms, maybe go through one Psalm each time. Consider taking that first awkward step towards a discipling relationship that will be built on the word. If it's built on the word, it'll last. Okay, last application is for all of these that I just sprung on you guys. For all of these, good resources are going to help you. So ahead of Sunday night, Sunday night gathering, I have some book giveaways. If you guys are interested and you promise to actually read what I have for you guys, I would love, love to put resources in your hands. So starting really simple, we have, me, Trey, and Chris have taken a lot from these, from biblical theology. Could I give you two copies? 
Okay. I want to give two copies because I want you to be able to go through it with someone else. Awesome. I got two more. I'm going to give, I'm going to give two copies away each time because I want you to sit down with someone and maybe read it together. So this one is God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. This is a resource where if someone is new to the Bible, maybe a new believer, this gives that big picture. Anyone interested in these two? Awesome. Four books in the Rose family. That's great. That's great. They're perfect for discipling relationships, looking at the word together, looking at good resources together. Getting a little bit more advanced, this book was extremely helpful for me when I went over the biblical theological tools in week two. Christ from beginning to end. It came out this year. It basically spends four chapters looking at tools to use when looking at the Bible, and then the rest of the book is just the big storyline of the Bible via different themes. Anybody interested in these? Awesome. Yes. These will be great resources. Okay. That's it for book giveaways, but also on Sunday night, just consider taking one of those free resources. Okay, we're closing out our time together. But as we close this time and try to apply this class to our lives, I want us to see that this class, in one sense, isn't over. We're not actually done with what we've learned. We're never done with the Word of God. So Graham Goldsworthy says it the best. He's a true gift to biblical theology, a professor and a lecturer, he said it best in According to Plan, his, his biblical theology. We are never finished with questions of what the Bible says, how it says it, and what it should mean for us. We're never finished with the Word of God. Never finished understanding it. That closes our time in the last week of biblical theology. So would you pray with me?